Bible Chapel, Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22, with Pastor John King. Hey, thank you, Virginia. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Today we're going to be continuing in Galatians. We'll be in verses 15 through 22. Uh, while you're turning there, let's, uh, let's get familiarized to where we were. Last week, we, uh, we saw that Paul used uh, three powerful arguments to prove that the justification, which means being made right with God, can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. No additional works are to be added. There is only one gospel. Familiar with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We don't need to complicate it. When a person is brought to faith, it is by the conviction of sin through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, causing a person to repent of their sin and recognize their need of a Savior. And when that person believes and receives God's provision for forgiveness and eternal life through Christ, then their new life begins. And if you're here today, you should have a testimony of what happened, how the Lord came into your life, what your life was like beforehand, when you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but most importantly, how your life has changed. Now, because the Galatians had allowed themselves to be deceived, and we said that we used the word bewitched last week, I like to be able, that's kind of a fun thing to teach on, uh, into the false teaching that required adding to the gospel. They were adding to the gospel by following Levitical ceremony, in this case circumcision. And Paul is determined to set the record straight. I mentioned last week, this is like a mini book of Romans. And you say, oh, more doctrine. Well, you know what? Doctrine is important for us. I'm not going to try to bore you with it, and I hopefully won't, but doctrine is super important for us. So Paul's determined to set the record straight, and he's saying basically, uh, just as our justification, our, our salvation in Christ, our initial coming to the Lord, is to be a work of the Spirit, so is our sanctification, which means our continued walk in the Lord after our salvation. <coughs> to bear fruit... It, too, must be a work of God. And so Paul was trying to uh, you know, hit, this, hit this message home, and he kind of goes over it and over it uh, again and again. But let me just say this. Ultimately, it's, it's about our approach to God. Think about your approach to God. We can try to swim upstream by keeping the law and by good works in our own strength. And ultimately, we fail. Ultimately, we fail. Or we can go with the flow of God's grace and the empowering of his Holy Spirit, freely choosing to worship and serve him, knowing that his blessings are ours apart from any performance on our part. Any performance on our part. God gave the message to the prophet Habakkuk, which was quoted a few times already, simple, six simple words. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. This week, we're going to look at two primary teachings. First, we're going to see the permanence of God's promise. 
The promise he gave to Abraham and has thereby been extended to all believers. We're spiritual children of Abraham because of the promise that he gave, that God gave to him. Second, the purpose of the law. You know, you kind of go, okay, at some point you've got to say, well, what is the reason? Why do we still have the Ten Commandments out in our hallway? You have to go back to that. And you have to give an answer for that. We know that the law was given by God himself, his voice at Sinai. So what plan or what does it serve? How does it work in God's plan of redemption? We're going to look at that, start to look at that today. Let's look at our passage. We'll read Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Paul reads or writes, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. So what purpose then does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now only a mediator does not mediate for one only. Excuse me, no. A mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Verse 22, but the scripture has confirmed, or excuse me, confined, the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, uh, help us to focus our minds. Maybe today's a good day to take a few notes. Lord, help us to uh, take in your word. Help me, Lord, not to misrepresent your word in any way. Lord, help me, uh, Father, to speak your word in a way that um, reflects the truth that you desire in our hearts, Lord. And may it have its work done in our hearts. May your word not return void in our hearts as we receive from you today your teaching, and your truth. Go before us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So first we're going to look, uh, verses 15 through 18, the permanence of God's promises. The permanence of God's promises. Notice in verse 15, he starts out with the word brethren. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. That is good. That's a good sign because Paul still doesn't consider them to be unbelievers. He considers them to be a little bit or a lot off in their teaching and their understanding of, of grace and, and salvation. But he's speaking to those he considers to be his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's a good thing. But he's also speaking to them. He's, using a, he's getting ready to use an example. He says, I speak to you on a human level in the manner of men. 
And he says, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed. Now Paul is going to use the illustration that you may be familiar with of how a typical contract, a legal contract, a document, is drawn up between man and businesses and organizations. Uh, he calls it a covenant. A covenant means a disposition or, or a, an arrangement that's been agreed to by both parties. And he says it was confirmed. That means it was, it was ratified. It was made valid. Okay, so you get this word covenant. Let's talk about that real quickly. Uh, I like what Chuck Swindoll, how he, how he helps us understand the term covenant. He says the term covenant has several nuances in Scripture. The Hebrew word berith could refer to a simple human contract or agreement that was legally binding. Or it could refer to an unconditional promise of God. Well, if you know your Bible, you'll see he's already seen his unconditional uh, covenant with Noah. He said, I will make a covenant with you and your family. And he also made a famous covenant, which was uh, stolen by our culture, which is the sign of the rainbow, saying he will never flood the earth ever again. Uh, I think we need to take that back. It may be difficult. But if somebody wants to display a rainbow, you can remind them that's God's promise. That's a covenant of God. And that was stolen. A covenant could involve two equal parties, like Abraham and Abimelech, that story back in Genesis. The Abimelech was the uh, uh, Philistine king, and they made an agreement at Beersheba, in which both e are equally responsible to keep their ends of a bargain or suffer consequences. Or the covenant could involve two unequal parties, and that's what we're talking about here. Like God and humans, very unequal. In which the grantor, God, enters into an agreement, knowing the end from the beginning, and this is what gives us comfort, knowing the end from the beginning and ultimately takes it upon himself to fulfill the promises in his own time and by his own means. Chuck Swindoll, words of wisdom there. And so Paul uses this illustration uh, and it says, that the, uh, though it is man's covenant, yet it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. When two parties make a covenant or a contract, a third party doesn't get to come along years later and change the original agreement, is what Paul is saying. Paul's illustration is meant to show that on the human level, contracts and agreements are binding. We're going to see that God, uh, when he's established his covenant with Abraham, that it was binding as well. Paul needs to remind them of this. God's promise was irrevocable and could not be changed or nullified by any human means or reasoning. We see that God's covenant is, of course, far superior than any man-made covenant. In verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We saw some Genesis scriptures this morning in our scripture reading. What promises? Well, promises of God's promises of blessing and the benefits of salvation in Christ. That was spoken. Even though the word Christ wasn't mentioned, then that's what God intended. Genesis twenty-two eighteen says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed 
Because you have obeyed my voice. Those are the words to Abraham. So many times throughout Genesis, this covenant and this promise is reiterated and re-spoken through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice it says here, uh, it was to Abraham, so it was directly from God. We, we, we read a little bit, we'll talk about it later, but we read about the law being through a mediator. This was the promise given directly from God to Abraham and his seed. The singular part of this word seed, the singular part, is the reference to Abraham's posterity, which is the Messiah. He does not say, so Paul wants to hone in on this, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many. Paul specifies singularity. And then he goes on, he says, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So he then makes a positive identification for us. Who is Christ, which means the anointed one, the Messiah. Paul's point here is that the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham didn't reside in the Jewish people, nor did it reside in the the law. The promise resided in Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said with his own, he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. That was he, you know, he, our Lord has his theology, right? That's for sure. Verse 17, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later. Now remember, we've been saying it when we started this chapter, one of Paul's uh, very important points to the false teachers was, look, this promise was given way before the law. Who are you to bring the law back onto God's people? Who are you to put them under the yoke and under the curse of the law? The promise was made centuries prior to the law coming. And he even gives a figure here. Now, uh, if you do any deeper study into this, you'll find that there are different views as to when this clock starts and when it ends, the 430 years. And I'm not gonna do, we're not going to do a math uh, equation today. You can find that on your own. There have been several solutions. But the one that I tend to agree with is the one that says that Paul is counting the 430 years from the time that Jacob went into Egypt. Remember, the, 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 uh, the covenant was reaffirmed several times through the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in Genesis 46, 1 through 4, and so this 430 years is the time from God's confirmation of his promise to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, until the giving of the law at Sinai. That's a position of many, and I agree with that position. You can study it on your own to see. He says that the law, which was 430 years later, here's the important part. The law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That's the main thing we need to know. Um, the bottom line remains. God's promise to Abraham stands and was in fact confirmed in Christ. Excuse me, Christ. We've been saying that. Excuse me. And that it should make the promise of no effect. You know, this was a promise from God. And if you come along later and you try to change the agreement that God made with Abraham and descendants, spiritual descendants of Abraham, 
you would make the promise of no effect. But the law, as, as good as it is and as important as it is, and we're going to be talking about it, cannot nullify the promise, the covenant. Martin Luther, uh, the, the, you know, some would say the father of the Reformation, he says this, he says, Paul finds his arguments for the righteousness of faith everywhere. Even the element of time serves to build his case against the false apostles. Let us fortify our conscience with similar arguments. They help us in our trials of our faith. They turn our attention from the law to the promises, from sin to righteousness, from death to life. You say, oh, this is, you know, I got this. I've learned this. I grew up with this. This is kind of boring. Wait till your faith is challenged. Wait till your faith is challenged. And he says in verse 18, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What's our inheritance? These are our eternal blessings in heaven. God never intended the keeping of the law to be the way to receive your inheritance. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. If it was given to Abraham based on our ability to keep the law, first of all, we all fail, and second of all, it changes the unconditional nature of this covenant that God has between us. So in the final analysis, writes Warren Wearsby, God made this covenant to a promise with Abraham through Christ so that only two parties who can make any changes are God the Father and God the Son. If you want to have that argument, I like what he says. Moses cannot alter this covenant. He can add nothing to it. He can take nothing from it. The Judaizers wanted to add to God's grace as though anything could actually be added to God's grace. If you've experienced God's grace, you know you can't add anything to it. And take from God's promises. They had no right to do this since they were not parties of the original covenant. That's a good point. That's a good point for Paul to say to those Judaizers, who are you to put this upon the church and these believers at Galatia, to put this yoke on them? Who are you? But you might want to ask the question, what happens when God's people fail to respond to God's promises in faith? We, we all do. When we fail to respond to God's promises in faith. And basically, when we do, you and I are essentially miserable Christians. We're not happy Christians. Because now you know, we're back to doing our own thing, trying to figure it out. We're essentially miserable because we won't experience his blessing. We haven't lost our salvation, but we're not experiencing God's blessings. Later in this uh, fine uh, letter from Paul, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, this is a memory verse for many of you. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Even so, you know, and we know we fall short, and we fall short of our, our need to walk in faith. We start to overthink things, I, I, I say, what would happen. We start to analyze too much, think we're too smart, or we allow the world's troubles to come upon us. We allow it to crowd out 
God's message to us. And we forget that we're to be walking in the Spirit. And, and you know, you look at that and you go, well, my life isn't always like that. Well, nobody's is 100% like that 24 hours a day. Thankfully, you're sleeping for some of that, but uh, that can keep us out of trouble. But we need to be reminded. That's why fellowship is so important. That's why Bible teaching is so important for us. Romans 3, 3 and 4 he, Paul, Paul answered, he's, he's had this question before, okay? He's, he's heard this one before. Uh, you know, even a lack of faith and disobedience does not nullify the unconditional co- covenant. Romans 3, 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now we, we uh, have another question, which was brought up by one uh, fine Bible teacher. Again, I, you know one of my favorites is Warren Wiersbe. And he asked the question that many of us might you know, be kind of scratching our head about, why in the world would anyone want to trade an unconditional promise from God for a set of laws that only brings frustrating curses to those who try to live it apart from God's grace. Why would you want to bring that upon yourself? And the sad truth, is, he says, I agree, is for one thing, legalism tends to appeal to the flesh. It tends to appeal. Uh, our flesh loves to be religious. We love to obey laws and we, we you know, observe these holy occasions even fasting. And there's nothing wrong with obedience. There's nothing wrong with fasting or solemn times of spiritual worship, provided that the Holy Spirit does the motivating and the empowering. Another characteristic, he writes, of religious legalism that fascinates people is the appeal to the senses. Again, it's more in the flesh. Um, he said, instead of worshiping God in spirit and truth, remember John 4, 24, Uh, The legalist tends to invent his own system that satisfies his senses. He cannot walk by faith. He has to walk by sight and hearing and tasting and smelling and feeling. To be sure, true spirit-led worship does not deny those five senses. We see other believers. We sing and we hear the hymns. We taste and feel the elements of the Lord's Supper. But these external things are but windows through which faith perceives the eternal. You know, it's like you're looking through a window. Uh, Paul would say in uh, in another writing, we see through a glass dimly. We're we're looking through a window of hope and truth, but they're not ends to themselves in our experiences together. So we tend to be, you know, it appeals to our flesh, legalism. Um, We can also do what's very bad, what the church is unfortunately famous for, and that's when we depend on religion, we can measure ourselves and compare ourselves to others. That's one of our favorite pastimes, isn't it? Our holiness, our spirituality, our righteousness. It's easy for us to look at others and see, you know, the speck in the eyes of others. And this is a fascination with legalism. He concludes, he says, yes, there is a fascination to the law, but... It is only the bait that leads to a trap. And once the believer takes the bait, he finds himself in bondage. Remember, Paul said it would be a curse. 
The, the law, if you put it upon yourself, you try to swim upstream like that, it brings a curse upon you. Far better to take God at his word and rest in his grace. We are saved by grace through faith, and we must live by grace through faith. This is the way to our blessing. But the other way is bondage. And sometimes, it, you know, when you get in a study like this, you, you know, you're, you're going through the motions. You're doing your prayer time. You're, you're texting your friend, your accountability partner that says, hey, did you have a devotional today? And you're doing the things that are good and healthy. But you're trying to, you start to find yourself realize, I'm trying to do this in my own flesh. Lord, I just want to be led. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with your grace and your goodness and your truth. Otherwise, this is not any fun. I'm going through religious exercises. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Amen? Amen. So what about the law? Galatians 19 through 20. What, what then, what purpose then, Paul writes, what purpose then does the law serve? Or NIV, why then was the law given at all? If God had always intended to bring blessing and salvation through grace, then why the law? Why did he give the law? And Paul answers right away. He says, it was added because of transgressions. Till the seed could come, should come, to whom the promise was made. Remember the promise made to Abraham that they tried to nullify, which can't be nullified? It was added because of transgressions. Added to what? It was added, God added the covenant. He added the law to the covenant for a short period of time. Well, long period of time, but in God's economy, it was a short period of time. Why did he do that? Well, one reason it was in order to show God's people their need of a Savior. You guys remember this from Romans. And we're going to hit more in depth on this next week. When God redeemed his people from slavery under Pharaoh... He gave the law in order to preserve order among the new nation of two to three million people that, he, remember, he took from Egypt through the parted sea out into the desert. Two to three million people. It was to provide regulations for the people to keep them from spiraling into apostasy. While Moses was on the mountain, while God was giving the commandments and writing them on the tablet, and the, his voice was audibly heard, and you know, while there, he's doing that, they build a golden calf, and they worship a golden calf. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he breaks the tablets, and he, go, you know, he, he, he lets them have it. The Lord sent him down. He says, go to your people. They were rebellious. It was also an expression of God's righteousness, his righteous standards in comparison to their sinfulness. By offering sacrifice, they were able to trust in his mercy and grace. And as we were reading through the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights, as we went through uh, last spring and with Genesis prior to that, we learned all about that. The tabernacle, it was all about, you know, God was, was now redeeming his people. And now he was going to give them a set of laws to govern them. They were his people, the Jews. We see in Romans chapter 4 and 5, we're not going to go over there, but it says, we see that the law's purpose was to clearly define sin, to clearly define sin, and to shine a light on it, and to increase awareness. Sin was no longer defined as a matter of opinion among men. It became a divinely established fact. 
as we look at our societies, as we look at our society, as we've taken the Ten Commandments out of the school, we've long ago taken prayer out of the school. Many of you couldn't even remember that time in our history. I, I barely could. But as we go farther and farther away from God's holy standard and these, these Ten Commandments, which speak to who, you know, His holy standard for righteousness and order in society, you know how it is. It's, it's like uh, sin is now a matter of opinion, just as so many things, so many other things also are. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm going to avoid the giving you the information that we're all being disgusted with what we hear in today's society. I, you guys don't need to hear it from me today. But people become right, you know, they become right in their own eyes. They make up their own rules. They make up their own laws. And you see that we pay a price for it. Our, our society pays the price for it. And so does the church when the church doesn't hold to it. When the church doesn't even believe its own Bible and the words of God. So it was given, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, indicating that it was temporary, it was a temporary addition until Jesus Messiah came in the flesh to do the work of the Father. The law was never intended to provide a way of salvation. It was and is to reveal our need for salvation. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The central purpose was to point to Christ. The Galatians were missing this point. They were missing it. The law was never meant to be permanent. Interesting, he says, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, I will tell you, uh, some of you are, are going to seminary or going to be Bible students, you'll find that there are up to 300 different opinions about this particular verse. So we're, gonna have, we're not going to have fun with that. We're not going to try to confuse you. Uh, I, I believe, and I agree with those who would say that Paul was balancing his message by affirming that the law didn't come from heaven. Somehow the angels played a role. Excuse me, the law came from heaven. The angels played a role in giving of the law from God to Moses. And we know this because Deuteronomy 33.2 reads, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. When, when we studied through the book of Exodus, you know, you realize this was a major event. And when the law came, and you can see why the law is, can be a curse to somebody, because it was thunder and lightning and just all kinds of crazy stuff. We see God's holy angels. Only Moses could be in God's presence. The people were afraid. The people were afraid. You compare that to the promise that was given to Abraham, which was done directly from God. Stephen the martyr in Acts 7.53, he, he, he said, and, uh, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So again, angels, uh, it's kind of neat that we get to read and see uh, every so often. We get a glimpse of how God uses his holy messengers, his angels. But it came through the hand of a mediator. Again, one writer says this, Paul's opponents couldn't accuse him of denigrating the law. 
He openly acknowledged that it was given not only through Moses, the great servant of God, but through angels. The law is heavenly in its origin, therefore it is holy and good. Remember, Paul is not disparaging or rejecting the law. Rather, he's putting it in its proper place in the outworking of God's plan. There's a popular saying that says we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to do that a lot in our study and our understanding of God's word. We need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. He says in verse 20, this is the, this is the verse that has the 300 different uh, opinions, supposedly. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. And that, you read that, that, that is a little bit of a difficult passage, let's be honest. But he's referring to Moses being used by God to give the law to the nation Israel. But God is one. In comparison to the law, the promise was given directly from God to Abraham. I, I think I've probably said that three or four times now. It would lead up, or it would be up to God to fulfill the promise through Christ. God's promise leads to one family of faith through Christ, unified in true worship to the true God. So real quickly, uh, let's kind of review what we've looked at. The promise given to Abraham is permanent. The Judaizers in the Galatian churches were teaching that the law had superseded the promise. Paul explained that the law was temporarily added uh, to the promise until the fulfillment of Jesus' coming. The law required a mediator. We know that from our study of Exodus was given, uh, was given the law of Sinai. It was a very, as I said, a very impressive event. But again, the promise that was given to Abraham did not require a mediator. Why? Because when God made his covenant with Abraham, he did it personally without a mediator. God was revealing to Abraham all that he would do for him and his descendants. When you read those passages, as we read this morning from Genesis, a mediator stands between two parties and helps them to agree. But there was no need for a mediator in Abraham's case since God was entering into a covenant with him. Not Abraham with God. It was a, a one-way street. Right? It was a one-way street. Abraham wasn't making a deal with God. So Paul can say God is one. Therefore, there was no need for a go-between in the promise. Confined under sin. We're going to look at these two verses. We're going to stop at verse 22 because there's too much material to cover. But it's, it's a good start for next week's message. Let's put it that way. It says, verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? Answer, certainly not. He's rhetorically, he's speaking again. This is, you notice Paul's style here. Certainly not, or King James Version, God forbid. He denies the very thought that the law then comes against as though they're in, in, you know, a, in a battle with each other. The law given from Moses. The pro Both things came from God. Again, walking and chewing gum. Walking and chewing gum. Why does Paul say, don't even think that thought? He's, 
God gave both the promises and the law. He doesn't make errors. God doesn't make errors or lack perfection. He simply has two distinct purposes for each. But that doesn't mean that they contradict each other. He says, look, if, if there had been a law given which could have given life, if the path to being justified and made right with God came by law-keeping, then, again, truly righteousness would have been by the law. You know, if that was God's intention, they would have made a way for it. The way Paul words this is this, if you could keep the law perfectly, then that would be the path to redemption. But we know that everyone except Christ cannot possibly become righteous by doing righteous deeds because we are at best inconsistent. We're inconsistent. And what's amazing is that we can still trick ourselves into believing that we can keep ourselves righteous. No law, writes Henry Morris, no law, not only the, excuse me, Leon Morris, no law, not only the divinely given in the Old Testament, can bring life to people. A law can lay down what people ought to do, but it cannot give them the power to overcome the temptations to do evil. Verse 22, but Scripture has confined all under sin. You can't ignore it. You're, 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 whether you, you, know, you can play the game, but you can't ignore it. And, and he's, what he's saying is it's confined. In other words, to, to enclose, to shut up on all sides. We're, we're literally uh, surrounded by our sin nature. Not only is the law unable to make a person righteous, you and I are actually prisoners of sin. Two ways. One by nature and other by personal choice. By nature, Ephesians 2.3, it says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So by nature, we're hemmed in, we're shut up on all sides, we're confined under sin. Also by personal choice, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've been confined under sin. Scripture tells us that's what, you know, when, when the word is preached, when the word goes out, the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, mixed with the word of the gospel, that's what brings, uh, you know, this sort of condemnation on a person to, uh, con to, to repent and give their life to Jesus. That's how it was with you. That's how it was with me. And so, you know, it, it, it does its work. God's word does its work that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here we see the connection between the promise and faith. The connection. There's a connection between God's promise and our faith. Those who believe. So if you want to be free from sin's prison, you just need to, you need to come to Jesus. You need to do, do business with God. As we leave our study today, uh, my, my prayer here for us really is to say, I would hope that you and I would not simply go into a deeper theological understanding. We know doctrine is important. 
But maybe it, it can only satisfy when, it just, when it's only our curiosity and our intellect. Pastor John was talking about that in our prayer time this morning. My prayer for you and I, for all of us, is that we be sincerely changed once again by God's word. And I pray that this teaching and this study helps us to be free of any burden of self-righteousness or failure or accusations from the enemy about our shortcomings. You know, the fiery darts that come. And so as we grow and we learn to flow with His grace and mercy, not trying to swim upstream against it, not try to go through the law or self-help in the flesh. You just drown. You and I, those who believe in Jesus, we've been given the same promise received by Abraham 4,000 years ago. My challenge is that we would walk in it today and this week. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for your word. Lord, may it be um, not, as I said, not just simply uh, mental or curiosity, not an intellectual exercise on my part or anybody else's, but we would sh- truly take your word to heart and we would rest. It would bring peace to our hearts, peace and joy to know that we're not on some sort of um, scale that our performance is required by you, Lord, that if we don't perform to a certain level, then we, we get benched. Of course, Lord, you will chastise us, you will correct us when we, when we fall into sin, when we choose to sin. But Lord, we also, you also know that we're in the flesh. We're still here in this world. We still haven't reached the fullness of our inheritance with you in heaven. So, Father, I just pray that you would just uh, strengthen us, that we could have peace in a time of turmoil. We could have peace in a time of confusion to know that you're good and you love us and your grace abounds. And may we be extenders of that. May we extend your grace and your love to others around us, Lord. Put that on our hearts as you equip us, as we move forward in you. We thank you, Lord, for your graciousness and your love and your mercy. Go before us now as we conclude our service. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.